Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Hi, just a reminder, we're doing these talks live on Zoom every week. So if you'd like to be part of it as it goes on, and there are questions and answers at the end, you can ask a question if you like. Uh, we'd love to have you and become part of the community. Just subscribe at Torah on iTunes. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we have a lot to discuss today. Let's just dive in with why was the world created? How about that? How about that for an opening? <laughs> a lot of people wonder that. Uh, a lot of amazing reasons given. I'm going to give you um, one of the classic, one of the classic uh, explanations of why the world was created, and you'll see why I'm telling you this in a little bit. Um, this is from the Ramchal. So, so, so he says that that God desired to um, to essentially share His love, and um, the idea being that what what would be what would be the greatest thing that God could share with 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 another person with another creation, and and the answer that he gives is 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 a is just wonderfully logical and just 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 great. He says the greatest good that God could share um, is God Himself. His just just an aspect of Himself. So so that is the perfect good. God is the perfect good. So God desired to share the perfect good with His creations. So now. What, um, you see, you want to share the perfect good. God desired to share the perfect good, says the Ramchal, in the perfect way, right? Like, imagine, just to give a crazy example, I'm serving you some pizza. It's like the most delicious pizza in the world. And how do I serve you the hot pizza? By throwing it at you. <laughs> like, like that, that would not be sharing the perfect good in the perfect way. You want to share the perfect good in the perfect way. So God desired to share of himself in the perfect way. Now, this is where it gets sort of complicated or interesting, because now this is this next part is going to touch on suffering, the difficulty of this world, and really the entire human condition. So you ready for this? There's a problem. If God is going to share his perfect good in a perfect way, well, if God just gives of himself to us, then we've received it without working for it at all. Now, this is called Nechama de Kasufa. That's, um, that's the sort of the, the, the technical uh, official phrasing for this idea. And it's usually translated into English as the bread of shame. And this concept is, is that if you, you know, Let's say you want to help someone out, and uh, they're they're very needy, and you give them this gift, and you know they're very grateful, appreciative. There's love between you; everything is great. But then you just continue to give them this gift and gift, and 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 they're not working for it at all. At a certain point, the receiver feels shamed by the fact that they have not earned this great tova, this great kindness. And so the delivery of the perfect good is now imperfect. So now let's go back to our original idea. God desired to share the perfect good with his creations. What's the perfect good? God himself. How does he share the perfect good? Well, since it's God, God wants to share the perfect good in a perfect way. Okay, but then based on what we just said about the bread of shame, that means that mankind has to work in order to earn this perfect good. Otherwise, we will not receive it in the perfect way since we will be shamed by the receiving of it. As such, God creates this world. Remember, we're answering the question, why was the world created? This is the Ramchal's classic answer. God therefore creates this world where we have to invest effort, sometimes hardship, sometimes even suffering, 
in order to earn that which God desires to give us. Then, once we've earned it, we are now able to receive the perfect good in the perfect way, because now that we've earned it, we don't receive it with any aspect of shame since we really exerted ourselves for it. So what you've just heard right now is a presentation of a classic bit of Torah, why the world was created from the Ramcha. Okay? Now, which means really the real life exists when we leave this world, right? When we break through all boundaries and we're able to sort of like be beyond, 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 just completely transcend all the limitations of this world. We no longer have the opportunities of this world to actually earn something, which is why this world in its strange way is higher than, than the spiritual worlds, because nothing is allowed to be earned there because there's no free choice. Here we have free choice, so we're able actually to exert ourselves. So, so this world is actually a, a world of tremendous ironies, which is, on the one hand, it's so limited. On the one hand, there is suffering here. On the other hand, this world offers God's creatures an opportunity. The exalted spiritual realms do not offer angels. This is why it says when when we do even the smallest mitzvah with the smallest exertion, or when we even do a little bit of tshuva, coming close to God, trying to fix our lives, that the angels gasp in envy because the angels are not able to do what we're able to do down here. So, so this world is a very, very fascinating place. But we have a big question on the Ramchal. Again, all of this is premised on, everything that we just said is premised on the following, that if we just receive from God without working on it, we will feel diminished and we will not be able to receive the perfect good in the perfect way because we didn't earn it. There will be this concept of the bread of shame. So maybe, maybe you have thought of this question on your own. This is a very big question. You ready for the question? The question is, God, who nothing is difficult for, why couldn't have God created us in a way where we didn't feel shame receiving free gifts? <laughs> Do you hear that? This, this entire theological dilemma is very easily solved. Remember, God created the entire world, all of human history, the, the whole universe. God, according to the Ramchal, created to solve this quandary, and yet we have such a simple answer. God just created us in a way where you could just give it to us and we don't feel bad about it. Sounds, sounds pretty straightforward to me. But, as you can imagine, there's a shortcoming to this solution. There's an answer to this. And the answer is very deep. It's not complicated, but it's deep. And it's going to inform how ideally we need to lead our lives. It's also going to inform an insight into what went wrong in the Garden of Eden. You know, we're always going back to the Garden of Eden because basically the entire human condition, our lives today, today, right now, are completely explained and defined by what got short-circuited when we ate from the tree. We can go back again and again and again and again to that event and, and continue to learn how to live a more wholesome life with God based on that event and making sure that our correct attitudes and our correct desires are in place. So hopefully this will be a further a further fixing, a further, a further explore, exploration of, of how we can get it right. So, so what's the problem with this idea? God just created us in a way where we don't feel any shame receiving free gifts and everything's fixed. You don't need a, you don't need a world anymore. 
We don't need free choice anymore. Everything's good. Okay. What's the problem? What's the problem with that answer? The problem is the following. Now listen, listen carefully. You know, God is beyond, 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 beyond. We can't put any parameters on him. You know, I had a moment where I, 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 I felt like I had come up with a word that I could use to address this problem in trying to describe God and yet not put limitations on him through my description of him. And so I was very happy with this word infinite. And then Rabbi Tzvi Freeman told me, oh, even infinite is putting a parameter on God. And I thought, oh, wow, okay. Can you imagine? I can't even use the word infinite. And if you think about it, it's true. What he said is true. So, so, but if we were to try to describe the essence of God, and we're getting into, you know, dangerous territory here, but if we were trying to do it in a, in a kosher Torah way, one of the words that actually I think would be very appropriate would be giver. That God is the ultimate giver. And when God created us in his image, the goal was, on a very deep level, to create more givers. You know, there's a, a line uh, that's a, one of these uh, key verses in the whole Torah, which is Olam Chesed Yibane, that the world is built on kindness. But it shows you that if you want to if you want to create the world through Chesed Olam Chesed Yibane, if you yourself want to be a creator of worlds, what's the secret to creating worlds? It's by giving, and it's through Chesed. It's through kindness, right? As we've been learning right now, this entire universe was created by God as an act of kindness for us to be able to receive God's perfect way, perfect good in a perfect way. Okay. So so now we've answered the question. Let's, let's review the answer. So make sure everyone followed. You see, God could have made us into receivers who experience no shame from receiving on a regular basis. That was 100% completely within God's power. But if God did that, he would have undermined his higher purpose. What was the higher purpose? To create us in his image. And since he's a giver, if he just made us into the perfect receivers, well, then that's, that's, not, that, that, that's not really in accordance with the plan, is it? It's like God has created the perfect welfare state. But, but why? God desired so much more. He wanted to create a realm, a universe of more givers. That just like God was the ultimate giver, he wanted to create more and more givers. So, when you understand that, we've sort of reached a milestone here in, 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 in understanding what I'm trying to communicate today. What you understand is, is that each one of our, um, you know, in, in, in tech, they call it default state. Default, I'm not crazy about that phrase because default has the word fault in it. It sounds like it's, it's lacking. But, but what, it, what it means in the technical world is that that's, that's where you're supposed, that's your starting point. That's where you should be at your starting point. So, so the starting point of humanity is to be a giver. That's, that's very important. Let's, I just make sure that everyone is really appreciating this and understanding this. Let me tell you why. Because I don't think this is most people's conception of themselves. And that this is a very, very fundamental problem. Not only that, but according to Rob Frummer, 
Remember, he was the Rosh Hashiva of Hachmei Lublin, the greatest yeshiva in the world. According to Rav Frummer, this lack of understanding about us, first and foremost, primarily, in terms of our own um, self-image, our own notion of self, was what went wrong in the Garden of Eden with Eve eating from the tree, Adam and Chava eating from the tree of knowledge. You see, in the conversation between Chava and the snake, Chava basically is kind of interrogated by the snake. Can you eat from the trees? Can you not eat from the trees? Which trees? Back and forth, they're they're discussing the details of exactly what she learned from Adam, her husband, because she heard the command from Adam. Adam heard it from God. Eve's understanding was there's a certain set of rules And these are the rules that I have to abide by. And here are the following rules. Here's what Eve's sort of like marching orders, as she understood them as a human being in terms of her responsibilities in this world were. This is what her understanding was as she communicates it in, in the Torah. She says that from this tree I can't eat from, but from all the other trees I can eat from. Now, this is where it gets very, very nuanced, but this is where all of the, where everything goes wrong, okay? There's a little tiny area here. She didn't add to the basic rules that she was supposed to live by. She didn't become a giver in terms of her relationship with God. She said, here's exactly what's required of me. I can eat from all of these trees. And then it's a very short step before the snake upends her. She didn't add in terms of her relationship with God. Now, we discussed this a few weeks ago, but this is a very important point. You see, the Ramban says it most famously, that you can keep glot kosher, right? The strictest standard of kosher, but really, not not joking around, really the strictest, strictest standard of kosher. And you can be 400 pounds. You can be a glutton, while still keeping the Torah. You can absolutely only drink kosher wine and and have the strictest observance of kosher wine and be an alcoholic. It's, there's something, there's, there's a big revelation here. In other words, God gives us the basic groundwork of how to live through the mitzvahs And then we have to take it to the next step, not just to have the mindset, here's what I can do, here's what I can't do. But within the realm of what I can do, to go beyond and to create our own unique relationship with Hashem, to lessen within the realm of what's permitted. And that, according to all the rabbis, is where you become holy. See, the whole idea of, like, are you holy? Well, who who would dare call themselves holy? Who can even define exactly what's holy? It seems to be one of those very esoteric, amorphous-type words, like, I don't know, I'd like to be holy. It sounds good. That guy might be holy. I don't know. But you know, Judaism is all about definitions, defining things. You know, one of my favorite examples of that is that, um, you know, to show you how Judaism is working on so many different levels at the same time, there's a line in the Psalms which says, King David says, 
My mouth shall be filled with your praise. Right? It sounds like, you know, what are you going to learn from that? It just, just sounds like a general inspired prayer to God. Let my mouth be filled with your praise. And yet one of the very detailed things the rabbis learn out from that is that when you're chewing food, don't pray to God. <laughs> if your mouth is full of food, that's not the greatest way to pray. Isn't that wonderful? Here you hear in one line total divine poetry, and at the same time, an incredible practical halacha about how to conduct yourself in an appropriate manner in terms of your heavenly service. Don't have a mouthful of food while you're saying the Shema. So, so, so the word holy sounds very exalted, but as with everything in Torah, we actually break it down and we give you a practical definition of what it means to be holy in the here and now. And, and you're ready. I'm going to, I already said it, but I'm going to say it again. Now, this is the definition of being holy. Among those things which are permitted to you, forget about, I'm just like, I can do this, I can't do that. See, because if my whole mindset in terms of serving God is, this is what's allowed, this is what's not allowed, then I haven't become a giver. I've just received a set of rules. But I'm not in the realm of being a giver yet. And that's the whole deeper reason why God created the entire universe to begin with, right? Because he could have created us to be perfect receivers and removed any aspect of shame from receiving. But he didn't do that because he had a higher intention which is to make us like him, to create us in his image. And just like he's the ultimate giver, we should be givers too. And as such, be creators of worlds, just like him. Olam chesed yibine, through giving. But how do you give? You take those things which are permitted to you, and you go beyond them, and now all of a sudden you are a giver in terms of your relationship with God. Because now you've gone beyond. You know, the one of the definitions of what a, a chassid is, right? It's a pretty common definition, you know? That a, a chassid, which would be, you know, translated, I guess, in English as pious. You know, I don't hear that word too often, but whatever. Um that a chassid is someone who goes beyond the letter of the law. So I would say, based on what we're talking about today, is if you want to place where a chassid fits in terms of our discussion today, a chassid would be someone who goes beyond beyond the letter of the law. <laughs> because what we're saying is, our, our default setting, our starting setting has to be to go beyond. Now, a chassid is someone who goes beyond going beyond. Okay. But now I want to tell you what the Pshiska Rebbe says. One of the great Torahs. So he asks his, he asks his chassidim, what's a chassid? Right? So remember, the Pshiska Rebbe was the Katska Rebbe's Rebbe. So, so here's the answer that he gave. He says, what, I'll tell you what a chassid is. He says, according to the, letter, to the letter of the law, a person is not allowed to fool another person. That's, that's the letter of the law. What does a chassid do? He makes sure that he doesn't fool himself. Do you hear that? It's very, very, very deep. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. A chassid is someone who goes beyond the letter of the law. 
The letter of the law says, don't fool another person. A chassid takes it one step further and makes sure that he, that, that he doesn't fool himself. You see, so many of us go through life just fooling ourselves. I'm fooling myself that I'm really trying. I'm fooling myself that I'm really working. And then, you know what? Over time, we start to believe the lie. Okay, let's go further. See, it says, the rabbis teach that God is not like man, which we know, and then they give many different, very powerful examples of how God is not like man. Right? I'll tell you one example that I like before we get to the one reason why I brought it up, that when a, a craftsman creates something, no two things, or rather, everything, it, it will look alike. You make a certain mold, craftsman makes a mold, and then everything that comes out of that mold looks the same. Like imagine you make a mold for a coin, and then all the coins that come out of that mold look the same. That's the example the rabbis give. Whereas God creates people, and no two people are alike. <laughs> that's, that's an amazing difference between God and man. One, one of infinite examples, right? But that's, that's a classic example from the rabbis. And I can't tell you that without telling you one of my all-time favorite thoughts from the Katsukarevi. He says, you know, you're not surprised when you meet someone who doesn't look like you. So why are you so surprised when you meet someone who doesn't think like you? <laughs> Okay, here's another example of how man and God are different. When a human being builds a house, he builds the foundation first, and then he builds the second floor of the house. Makes sense, right? You build from below to above. That's just normal. We, wouldn't, we don't even think twice about that. That's how you build a house. First the foundation, then you build up. Build the second floor. Okay. But what is the opening verse of the Torah? Listen carefully. Breshis bara elokim es hashamayim ve'es ha'aretz. In the beginning or out of beginnings, God created the heavens and then the earth. Right? The heavens, that's the second floor. First God created the second floor, then he created the first floor. Isn't that funny? First God created the heavens, and then he created the earth. For us, we create the foundation first. But God is different from us. So that point is very clear. It's, it's very beautiful. But I was thinking about it a little bit more. And this is not to contradict the teaching that I just told you. It's just to develop it and approach it from a different angle. Okay? We're going to approach that same teaching in a different angle. You know, ultimately all that exists is God. Not even ultimately. We can say it more simply. All that exists is God. God is the only one that exists. And as, um, as Rabbi Green once said so beautifully, you know what, God is the only thing going on 24-7. <laughs> if you want to know what's really going on in the world, God. Just God. It's the only thing going on. As such, if you think of it from that point of view, that very macro point of view, right? The foundations of this world are actually heaven, not earth. So, so now when you think about it, it's actually very interesting. When it said God created the heavens and the earth, well, the heavens are really all that exists. So God really did create the foundation first, before the second floor. 
Do you understand? That the foundation of this world is actually heaven, not earth. Because heaven ultimately is all there is. Which means, if you want to take this thought one step further, if you look above you, like to the heavens above, right? That's the foundation, which means, you know what this world is? Upside down. (laughs) We live in an upside down world, don't we? Because if the foundation is up above, we're upside down. (laughs) And is there a better way to describe this world than upside down? Is there a better description of this world as this upside-down existence that we live in? So we're upside-down and we're yelling at God, you're upside-down. But if you listen to the whisper coming from heaven, he says, no, 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 everything's okay, you're (laughs) upside-down. It's all, it's all according to plan. Everything is straight. You're upside down. It's okay. But if you know the secret, then you can get right side up. <laughs> it's only upside down if you think you're right side up. If you know you're upside down, then you can be right side up. <laughs> With that in mind, we can extend it even further. We can extend it even further. You see, you have the mind and you have the heart. And we think the mind is the foundation, but really the heart is the foundation. You know, and there are multiple ways of looking at this, by the way. This is a very deep subject, and, you know, you can say the opposite, and there will be a truth to the opposite, but, and it doesn't contradict what I'm saying right now. I'm just explaining it according to this paradigm right now. Please understand that. It's not either or here, you know. I'm describing it from this point of view right now. From this point of view, See, you can see the mind as on top of the heart, which is also true. But that means that really that the mind is the headquarters. Or you can understand that the mind is the second story, but really the heart is the foundation. So that the mind is actually resting on the heart. And that's also true. So let's look at it from that point of view. The mind is, so to speak, the earth, because the mind is perceiving all of the things about the physical realities of this world, right? What are scientists doing? They're using their minds so expertly, and they're really delving into all the amazing aspects of the physical dimensions of this world. That's the mind. But what did we just say? That 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 this earth really rests on the heavens that that's the real foundation. First God created the heavens and then the earth. That's the real ultimate foundation of the earth. Which means if the mind correlates with the earth, then the foundation for the mind is the heart and the heart is the heavens. You know, one of the big secrets, if you want to go deeper, One of the big secrets is that how you think, what you decide intellectually, is often based on the foundation of your heart, how you feel about something. How you feel about something will influence your thinking very strongly about how you think about something. Ultimately, the heart tells the brain what to think. That's why it's so important 
to open your heart, to understand the reality of the oneness of God and that all that exists is God and that he gave us his Torah. Unless that knowledge is in your heart, if it's just in your head, you're not going anywhere. You know, as Reb Shlomo would say, it's sweet and it's cute, but you're not getting very far. Unless this knowledge is in your heart, which means your heart has to open to this, the brain is never going to make much progress on these matters. Now, let me just say the other side, just so, just to give a balanced presentation. The heart can also think crazy wild things that are inappropriate. And then the mind actually does have license to keep the heart on a straight path. So the mind often has to be used to overrule the heart. And that's a very proper use of the mind. But in its sort of default setting, and it's, you know, just sort of like, you know, you just press the reset button and who, who zoom in who, as they say, right? The mind is usually going according to the heart and often doesn't even know that it's doing that. That's why, you know, I, I studied government and, and uh, you know, you can really be like, you know, like a policy wonk and, uh, you know, know all the ins and outs of, you know, why, why, why do states act and things like that. You know, I'll tell you a story from my own life. When I, when I was a freshman at Harvard, I had one of my roommates was this guy who was like a genius. He had gotten a perfect score on his SATs. Uh, anyway, he's in the next world now. Should rest in peace. A lovely guy, totally wonderful guy. Um, anyway, we were playing risk. So you can imagine, you know, a bunch of Harvard freshmen in their dorm room playing risk, which if you don't know that game, it's about world domination, right? It's a map of the world and everyone's got their armies and you're trying to take over the world. And famously, this game usually takes hours, hours to, to, to play, right? And I had made a, a, uh, a peace treaty with, uh, with this with with this roommate of mine, um, Richard Varney, that was his name. Anyway, anyway, into the game, he broke this peace treaty, and I, I, I couldn't understand it, and I, I, I said to him, "But we, but we're we 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 are friends," and he turned to me and he quoted Bismarck. Right, which was the German, the German leader who sort of like turned all the principalities of Germany into a, a nation state. He was he was sort of like kind of like the George Washington of modern Germany. Okay, so he quotes Bismarck and he says to me, "Nations don't have friends; they only have interests." <laughs> and I thought, "Wow, you know." <laughs> Welcome to Cambridge, you know? So, anyway. People think that that nations have interests and that it's very sort of cut and dry. But if you don't know this story, and I know many of you do, it's a good one just to remember because I think this is a deeper description of how nations and, and leaders of nations actually act and what actually motivates them. So Harry Truman recognized the state of Israel. And if you think about it, if you look on the map, why should the United States risk alienating the Arab nations, which control, I would love to know the actual percentage number, because it's so absurd and it should, it should, this this statistic alone should bring peace to the Middle East, right? 98% of the Middle East, the Arab nations rule. It, it can't be very far off from that, okay? Anyway, um, so why, 
Why would it be in the interest, if nations don't have friends, they have interests, as Bismarck said, right? Why would it be in the interest of the United States to antagonize 98% of the Middle East, where we have strategic interests, including oil there? In fact, the State Department, the U.S. State Department, was very against the United States recognizing the state of Israel. So why would Harry Truman do it? And so the answer is, because he had a friend named Eddie Jacobson, who he had been partners with in a hat store in St. Louis that went bankrupt. Now, you know, usually when business is good, you know, whether you like your partner or not, you're on good terms because you're both making money. But what happens when everything bottoms out? What happens to your relationship then? So it's a testimony to Eddie Jacobson, what a mensch he was, and to Harry Truman, what a mensch he was, that they stayed close friends even though the business wasn't successful. Not only did they stay close friends, but when it was, when Chaim Weitzman, the then president of Israel, who was going to be the first president of Israel, right? Or maybe he already was, I don't know. But, but, but he was trying to get a meeting with President Truman so that they could cement this arrangement where the United States recognizes Israel as a nation, right? And he wouldn't meet with him. They could not get this meeting to get Israel recognized. Eddie Jacobson comes into the White House, into the Oval Office, and he starts crying. I mean, these are two grown men. And Harry Truman, the President of the United States, right? Says, I can't take it. I can't take it. I can't take you crying. What do you want? He says, please meet with Weitzman. He goes, okay, I'll meet with him. And then Harry Truman recognizes the state of Israel. So, what does that tell you? That tells you that really the way the world goes, and I'm talking about foreign policy which influences the entire world, is based on one-to-one personal relationships. The mind follows the heart. If you can forge a relationship with someone who's traditionally not the obvious friend, if we can make individual friends in our community, in our workplace, with, with, with all people, because we're all God's children, and we can forge those individual connections the domino effect of those individual relationships, when they cross ethnic lines, when they cross national lines, can absolutely end our world changing, because this is really the way the world functions. So I see a question here, and I, I want to answer it because... Um, To go back to Chava, to go back to this idea that, that, that God created us to be in his image, and that if we want, if we really want to get it right, we have to think of ourselves, and I would go a step further, to demand of ourselves that first and foremost, we think of ourselves and act like givers, not as just the recipients of a set of rules. So, so the answer that Rav Frimer gives of what Chava should have done 
gets a little bit technical, so I'm just going to do my best to kind of summarize it. Um, <clears throat> if you if you know a little bit about uh, Torah grammar and the way um, the passages sort of roll out in the Torah, um, w- one of the things that you'll notice is that there's often a doubling of a word. Um, not not the exact word twice. Sometimes you have an instance of that, but that's not what I'm talking about. You have two different verb tenses of the same word right next to each other. It's a very common thing throughout the Torah. And when you have that, what the Talmud explains is going on um, grammatically, and Ralph Frimer explains it um, philosophically, it's very deep. The first mention is is the makor, is the source of the ability to do that thing. And the second word is the action that results. So in other words, first one recognizes the source, and then you do the action. Or to put it in more simple language, there's a verb phrasing in the Torah which only exists in Hebrew. This grammatical construct only exists in Hebrew, which is Lashon HaKodesh, the holy tongue, is that even grammatically we acknowledge that God is the source of everything and that our entire ability to do anything comes from that source. So here's the phrasing again. The first grammatical tense is God is the source of that thing. The second is we make an action drawing down from the source because all of our power to do anything only comes from God. Is that clear? Hopefully that's clear. What Rob Frimer sees, you see, when you really get deep, you don't just see what's there, you see what isn't there. And in looking at the phrasing of how Eve answers the snake, she doesn't do this double form of speaking. She doesn't acknowledge God as the source of everything. She only acknowledges her own action. She says, I can't eat from that tree, but I can eat from every tree. Not because God is the source of all of my ability, I can eat from every tree. In other words, she's already cut God out of the process in terms of how she's interacting in this world because she herself is not adding. Because she has put her own desires and the simple following of the rules and her own desires above her relationship with God. In other words, okay, I get it. I I can't touch this. I can't touch that. I can't go here. I can't go there. I get it. Now I'm in control. See, but now we've lost sight of the fact that this entire world is just a playground for us to have a relationship with God. And that all of our interactions, all of our deeds are just an ongoing conversation with God, a way to interact with God. Once someone loses that consciousness, they've lost the whole essential principle. You see, let me, let me make the point stronger. We want this world to be in harmony. The world is out of harmony. That's why there's so much suffering and there's so much pain in the world. You know, did you ever hear a, an orchestra tune-up? It's, it's this word, it's a great word in English, cacophony. It's just, ah, I got a headache listening to all this noise. That's what this world is right now. We're trying to harmonize the energies of this world. But if you want to be in harmony with the universe, if that, that's what we're striving for in terms of the end goal of creation, for all of us to be in harmony with the universe. If you want to be in harmony, you have to be a giver. You have to be adding. As as a basic, you have to be adding. 
So, so, so in terms of the here and now, Chava should have already been thinking all of these, all of these fruits are available to me. But you know what, God? You know what, God? Just between you and me, because you have to have secrets with God, right? Not, I mean, in the best way, where you share a private relationship with God. God, you know what? I'm not going to eat any mangoes. <laughs> I'm not going to eat any mangoes because I love you so much. I know I can eat mangoes. And you know what? Maybe one day I'll eat a mango. But then you know what? I'm going to stop eating kumquats. <laughs> because I want to do more. I want to do more because I love you so much. That's, that's, that's what we should have been thinking. That's the mindset that will fix the world. Okay, why don't we end here? What follows now are some questions. So the question and is, um, you know, uh, anatomically speaking, we, we spoke a, a lot about the heart today, but but in sort of a, in a here and now sense, the heart is a pump, and we're we're, we're speaking about the heart. Um, uh, how, how are we to understand all these discussions about the heart? That's the question. So, so what I would ask you to keep in mind is 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 two ideas. Well, one one idea is that um, you know when that 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 we have that the Torah that God made the world out of the Torah, right? That the Torah actually the Talmud teaches us that the Torah actually existed before the world existed. So what, is that, what does that mean? Um, what it doesn't mean is that there was some scroll floating up in space because before the world there was no time or space. So what was the Torah before the world existed? And the answer is, the Torah was God's dreams for the world. And God took his dreams for the world and he created the world out of that. So, so that's a, a poetic way of, of um, expressing a Kabbalistic concept better known as tzimtzum. But without going in, into all the details, the idea is that God created this world out of the Torah itself. Now, each person is a miniature world. Okay, as it says in the Talmud, if you save one person, it's like you save the whole world. So each person is a microcosm of the entire world. That's why every person is so irreplaceable and every person is so important. Um, now, each person, the Torah itself, which is what the world was made out of, has 613 parts. The rabbis teach that every single person has 613 parts as well. And that each part of a person correlates with another mitzvah. So from this you see that it's not simply a poetic metaphor to say that when we talk about the heart, that the heart is just can be likened unto something. The heart actually is the gateway to these higher realms that we're talking about. In other words, on a physical level, it most certainly is a pump. But since every single part of us correlates with another aspect of the Torah, and God condensed the Torah to make this world, each part of us is a gateway to a different heavenly realm. So in that way, we can understand that um, both are true and that, that this idea of metaphor doesn't have to enter into the discussion at all. Okay, hopefully that's... Um, hopefully I know that Chabad really in, 
really comes from the place of, as, as, as you were saying, and, and Sean, I just heard a tiny piece of what you were saying. I heard you say, and, and, and all the rest. So, so that, that approach is very much coming from this idea of, you know, the, the head kind of like running the ship. And, and again, that's totally beautiful and, and great, but, but we also, we also hopefully understand and recognize the truth of the power of the heart as well. And so, however you choose to serve God in terms of what your derech is and, and everything like that. Remember, one of the awesome things about the um, Hasidus is that all the different dynasties had a different thing that they specialized in. So, so to give you an example, like Rabbi Nachman of Breslov was Yivduas Hashem B'Simcha, that through joy and happiness, that this is the primary thing that should be um, emphasized. So I'm just giving you, um, there is no one answer to mind versus heart and which is dominant and everything like that. It, it, they're both true. And it's just a question of where you want to prioritize and everything like that. Um, my my uh, approach is coming from what I hope to be a, a very real holistic approach, which is my desire is that one should bring their intellect and their emotions to the service of God, because you have to bring your entire self to God. And, and if you're not bringing your emotions and you're just suppressing your emotions, then it's, you know, it's, it could be good in the short term. You might even be able to pull it off, maybe. But I, I don't know if that's the fullest life, honestly. And, and I'm not saying that, um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, trying to diminish any other approach because I don't fully understand all the other approaches. I'm just trying to tell you what I'm trying to communicate with these talks. I'm trying to communicate bringing your, the entirety of yourself. So from what I heard from you, honey, was how do I then bring my heart to God's service? Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, like I'll give you a very, you know, specific example. Yesterday I was learning Pirkei Avos and I felt like I wanted to learn it because I know that it's just something that we do during the summer and I wanted to carry on that tradition. And as I was learning, I was like, where's my emotional connection to this Torah? You know, and I guess Paragbav chapter six is a little maybe harder to connect just due to the nature of the concepts in chapter six of Avot. But um, I was like, how can I... And, and I was having difficulty, you know, just like accessing that feeling. So I'm wondering if you have any Yeah, so I'm just flashing on this, and it's probably going to sound crazy, right? But but I would just get, jump up with the book and start dancing. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm being totally serious. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, raise the book above your head and kiss it and hold it to your heart and say, thank you, God, so much for giving me these... Pirkei Avos and, and wisdom and everything like that. And, you know, so in other words, now all of a sudden you're serving God with joy. And now I bet you, I promise you, if you if you were to do that and it, were re- and it was a real expression of connection, when you looked at those Mishnayos again, you would see them differently. And I'm not saying that you would learn them in a way like all of a sudden you're learning, you know, maybe a... A, you know, something that's more user-friendly. But the whole act of it will become transformed. You know? So, so, so that's, um, you know, I, I, I always kind of go back to this. I remember I read it so many years ago, but it stayed with me because the, the sincerity of it, just, I, I just love it so much, where it says Rebbe Nachman, when he was young, he would go into a shul when he was by himself, and he would, there would be a pushka there. And before he would put in the, a coin in the pushka, he would say all these prayers. And then he would put the coin in and then he would walk out of shul. And before he got out of shul, he would go, oh, God, I think I forgot to put the coin in. But he knew he put the coin in. But he was playing games with God in the best sense of the word. He was being playful with God in the best sense of it. And then he created an excuse where he would go back and he would say all the prayers again. 
And he would put another coin in and he would start to walk out of the shul and he'd go, Oh God, I think I forgot again. And, and what I love about that is, is that it's such a case study. It's such a snapshot in how we can forge this intimate, emotional, direct, spontaneous relationship with God where we're in this loving relationship without being disrespectful or, or casual, but it's so intimate at the same time. So, so anyway, um, the thing is, is that, you know, let's say you're in a relationship with someone and let's say, you know, let's just pick a food. I don't know. Cauliflower is, kind of having a renaissance these days. <laughs> so maybe people like cauliflower again. I don't know. But I'm not a huge cauliflower fan for now anyway. So so let's say my, you know, my love wants cauliflower. You know, I'm not so excited about it. But if I know how much she loves cauliflower, then I'm going to the market and I'm like, the whole... My whole thing of buying cauliflower is not about me liking cauliflower or not. It's that I know that through this, I'm going to give my wife joy or the, the other person in the relationship joy. And so if, if that is the greater context of which we're doing all the mitzvahs, that, you know, and some of them I actually like, oh, wow, you want to serve steak tonight. That's great. You want to do that? That's what you want to eat? Fantastic. I also love steak. This is great, you know? So there are going to be mitzvahs like that, where you yourself enjoy doing. But there are also going to be mitzvahs where it's sort of like, well, I don't know about this. But if it's in the context of, wow, I get to do this to make the one I love the most happy, then then all of a sudden, the heart is really open. Now, now here's, I'm going to add one more step because I want to be mindful of the, the mind approach too, because I want it to be from a standpoint of balance. One should not fall into this trap, which is, oh, I'm doing this from such an emotional place and everything like that. You know what? I don't really feel like it, so I'm not going to do it. See, because then that's when the mind has to kick back in. The mind then has to kick back in and say, you know, you're talking to yourself, my friend, you've actually been commanded to do this. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a secret, just something personal. You know, I think for a lot of people, getting out of bed in the morning is challenging. And I would love to be that person who jumps out of bed in the morning, you know, that rises out of bed like a lion. By the way, that's on the first page of the Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch, that you're supposed to rise out of bed like a lion. It's not easy to do. And sometimes I'm just kind of just laying there in my bed. And then I have a thought, you've been commanded to get out of bed. Do it because you've been commanded. And then I get out of bed. Yeah, it's, it's similar. It's sort of similar to the move a muscle, change an action, or move a muscle or take an action, change a thought. Like sometimes we have to act it, and then perhaps maybe we'll be lucky enough to feel the change in, in thought and heart. Yeah. yeah resonate with you? Yeah. It does. It does. And, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that a person has to be kind of fluid. And again, one of the big teachings that I shared with you today, big for, big for me, I, I think it's one of the major teachings in Torah, as far as I'm concerned, was from the Pshiska Rebbe. Let's just review it one more time. So he says, what is a chassid? A chassid is someone who goes beyond the letter of the law, 
right? That's the kind of like if you just open up like some book that that that, that, that that's in a lot of books, okay? So, but the Pshizka Rebbe goes deeper. He says, the letter of the law is that you're not allowed to fool another person. But a chassid goes beyond the letter of the law. A chassid doesn't fool himself. You see, it's very important to access this, to bring your whole self to God, to access this emotionality. But you can't then trick yourself into thinking that, oh, I'm running the show, and if I don't feel like it in my emotional place, then all of a sudden, somehow, it doesn't apply to me anymore. Then you have to not fool yourself and go, wait a second, it's more than just this. I've been commanded. And, and so, so, so then you're bringing your full self. Um, anyway, hopefully that's, uh, hopefully that's... Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.